text this morning is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. We're going to be looking this week and in weeks to come at grace, what it means to talk about grace. So let's begin then by looking at our text at Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. If you would please give your attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and sufficient word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray that he would add his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning as a people not only in need of your grace, but in need of knowing more about your grace. Of knowing, Lord, how you are at work in our midst. And we ask that you would, through your word, O Lord, not only inform us, but that you would change us, that you would make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, what is grace? Is grace a substance? Is it something that God makes and gives to us? And it's our responsibility to hold on to? There are some that speak about grace in that fashion. Something that is a substance that we can use up and need to get more of. And we need to go to certain places to get more grace. But there are others who think about grace in a different way. Kind of like a mystical property. There is another school of thought that says that if we simply mention the word grace enough, somehow we will be equipped for the Christian life and everything will be fine. The answer to every problem is simply to say grace. Grace is not substantive, but it's also not mystical, ephemeral, like the wind. Grace is something that takes root in our lives and that actually does something. And it is not something that just gets us going, gets us started, and then we take over. Grace is not like Dad running behind the bike for the first time. You know what that looks like, right? Dad holds the bike, gets you going, and then let's go, and it's up to you. 
That's not how grace works. God doesn't start us going, and then it's up to us. You see, the problem is, it is in our world today very easy to either overestimate or underestimate grace and what it is. And so Paul, as he speaks to Titus, is going to be giving us some instructions in the next few weeks about what grace is, how it works in our lives, and how we should think about it. Because you see, there are some basic truths. Grace is real. Grace has appeared in Jesus Christ, and it changes us. The gospel actually does things to us. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be looking this week at the appearance of grace. Next week at, or in two weeks, at the authority of grace. Then we will look at the gentleness of grace. And then finally, how we are justified by grace. As Paul continues to speak through Titus. So let's look then this morning at three things about grace and what it gives. The first thing that we know is that grace gives training. Grace gives training. Secondly, we will see that grace gives focus. And then thirdly, we will see that grace gives hope. Well, let's begin then by looking at how grace gives training. As we see here in verse 11, Paul tells us that the grace of God has appeared. He actually says, for the grace of God has appeared. Now, anytime you see a therefore, or very often a for, what you should be doing is looking back in the text to see what came before. Paul is about to tell us something in light of what he has already told us. And you recall that we have been looking the last few weeks at Paul's instructions to people. Instructions about behavior. He has told us how we are to behave as elders. How we are to behave as older men. How we are to behave as older women. How we are to behave as younger women and younger men. He's basically told us how we are to behave in the church of Jesus Christ. And he says, I have told you all of these things because grace has appeared. You see, the four here links the doctrine of grace with all of the behavior that has gone before it. Usually, Paul's pattern is to tell us the doctrine, the teaching, and then to say, because you know this, Christian, act like this. In this particular letter, he's switched it up on us for a little bit of variety. He has told us what we are supposed to do, and he says, the reason you're supposed to do these things is because of the grace of God. You see, because Paul is not interested primarily in morality. He's not interested primarily in order in the church. He's interested primarily on seeing the people of God formed into the image of Jesus Christ. And that comes not just a result of what we've done, but a result primarily of what God has done. And so... We see here that grace gives training. It affects our behavior because of this doctrine. And it is something that comes, Paul says, to all. You see, this grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. Now, Paul is not 
telling us that everyone in the world, without exception, is saved. If that's what all means here, Paul's not paying attention to himself. Because just a paragraph before, he was describing people who were going to destruction because of their false teaching. So what Paul means here is not that everyone in the world is saved, or not even that everyone in the world has the possibility of being saved. What Paul means here is something very, very practical. He means that salvation has occurred, salvation has appeared for all sorts of people. No one is exempt from the appearance of grace. Are you poor? Grace has appeared for you. Are you rich? Grace has appeared for you. Are you highly intellectual? Grace has appeared for you. Are you a blue-collar, lunch-bucket kind of guy? Grace has appeared for you. Men, women, children, Americans, Africans, Asians, grace has appeared for everyone. And you see, this gives a responsibility to everyone. Everyone must respond to grace and everyone must be changed by grace. There is no exemption here, kids. Grace comes to you. It affects who you are. There's no exception, those who are retired. Grace still comes to you and affects who you are. There are no excuses at all because, you see, Paul is being very practical. He links the all specifically with us. You see here in verse 12, he says it trains us. And again in verse 14, he gave himself for us. We are the people that Paul is talking about here. There's another very practical way. Paul says that this grace appears, and it appears at the end of verse 12, in the present age. You see, grace is for now. I think we are often tempted to think about grace as being good in the hereafter. Grace is our ticket into heaven, our get-out-of-jail-free card. Grace is something that only affects our eternal destiny. And Paul says, no, grace affects you right now where you are sitting, in this present age and Paul knows the troubles that you experience in the world today don't mentally shake your head and say well Paul doesn't know how tough my marriage is don't shake your head and say well Paul doesn't know how difficult my parents are or how hard it is to get through the month with the money we have because you see Paul is the same person who called this present age evil in Galatians chapter 1 Paul knows that this present age is full of sorrow and difficulty and trials. He has hardships in his mind as he talks to these people in Crete. Some of them are slaves. Some of them have been disowned by their families because they have professed faith in Christ. Some of them have been subject to great abuse, both physical and mental. And Paul knows that the only way to face the day in this present age is by seeing that grace has appeared. He knows life is hard. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the Christian life is easy, that it's a piece of cake, 
that you believe Jesus and you're happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. Paul says, life is hard. But because it's hard, God has sent His grace. And this grace appears and it appears in our lives and it does training. It does two kinds of training. A negative training and a positive training. Now, the word training here means pretty much exactly what you think it would mean. This is not a word where I need to give you a lot of Greek nuances. When you think of training, you think of what? Sports or the military where someone is on the treadmill doing push-ups, doing squat thrusts, doing all kinds of heavy, sweaty, hard work. That's what grace does with us. It puts us through our paces. Grace is like your own personal spiritual trainer. It's not satisfied because you think you can do five pull-ups. It pushes you on to do ten. It's not satisfied because you think that it's good enough to spend ten minutes with the Lord in prayer a day. It pushes you to do a half an hour, to read your Bible more, to be involved more with other Christians. To seek the Lord more. Grace is something that trains us. And it trains us first and foremost in a putting off way. In a negative way. Do you see that? As Paul says, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So grace is about more than just instruction. This word for training is about more than giving facts. It is a world view. Some of you have gone to worldview camps or conferences. Grace is your own worldview camp. It is making a worldview of God's grace in your life. And grace begins by telling us that we are to leave off from sin. Grace teaches us something very practical. It's something that every single one of us can do. As a matter of fact, it's probably one of the very first things that we learn to do. For many of us, if our first word wasn't dada or mama, our first word was what? No. Do you want to go to bed? No. Do you want to eat this? No. Do you want to help mom? No. We learn this very quickly. Sin asserts itself in us in no. But you see, the grace of God takes that no and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Now, how much more practical can you get than that? Grace is something that teaches you to say no. It teaches us from the very beginnings and to say no both to the root principle of ungodliness and to its manifestations. You see, we must say no not just to the things that we do that are wrong, but we must say no to the entire concept of being against God. That's what Paul means when he says to renounce ungodliness. I don't want you to think about that primarily as a behavior. I want you to look at the word and take it at face value. You need to renounce being un-God. Being anti-God. Now that begins with faith. 
Because we must come to the place where we realize that we are not God. And that we must submit before God because He is the Creator. We must stop lying about who He is. That He is holy. That He is the Creator. That we owe Him everything. And that we have sinned against Him. And that the only hope that we have is to be pro-God. To listen to God in His Word. To hear from Him that the hope for our salvation is found in the work of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't end there. Because you remember we said grace doesn't just get us going and then leave us on our own. After we have come to profess faith in Christ, if we have put all our trust in Him, grace stays with us to teach us to say no to ungodliness as we look about ourselves, the way we think, the way we act, the way we relate to other people. We are to have a God view of ourselves and others. Not a self-centered view. We are to reject ungodliness. But we also are to reject the worldly passions that swirl around us. Because you see, Paul knows it is easy for us to fool ourselves in thinking that we are rejecting the root of a problem and yet still deal with the fruit of the problem. We say we reject ungodliness, and then we lie. We say we reject ungodliness, and then we covet what our neighbor has. Oh, I wish I had that car. Isn't this time of year one of the most dangerous in the year? I mean, I know we think about it in terms of celebrating the birth of our Lord, but this is the time of what? Of lists of stuff we want. You know, someone, I read something online, said it's extremely ironic that the day after we say that we are thankful for everything God has given to us, we act like maniacs to get things that we think we have to have the next day. And you see, what Paul says is, you need to reject that root of ungodliness, but also don't let it show up in your life. He's a very practical man. And you know, he's a good pastor. Because he doesn't let us off the hook. He won't let us. But there is more than just a negative training. Right? Because any of you that have done any kind of training know that while you are to not do certain things, not eat certain foods, not do certain things, you need to embark on a positive course as well. And so Paul in his typical fashion, not only talks about putting off things, but he talks about putting on things. He does this here in verse 12. We are not only to renounce or say no, we are also to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Now, this is actually the main verb in the sentence. So, this is more important. This is the meat If saying no is the potatoes and the vegetables, this is the meat. This is where we start. Paul wants us to begin positively living a life. (coughs) A life committed to the Lord. The main focus of the Christian life is positive. And it is active. (coughs) It is not sufficient 
to merely stay away from bad stuff as a Christian. It is not sufficient to live in your closet and try and avoid all sorts of horrible things and people and sins. No, Paul says we must be active, we must be out and about, we must be living a life to glorify the Lord. God is telling you today, He is commanding you through His Word, inspired and written down by the Apostle Paul, that you, Christian, today are to get to work. If you are not praying for others, you must get to work. If you are not seeking a life of holiness, you must get to work. If you are not telling others the story of Jesus, you must get to work. You must live a life that God has prepared for you. And this life encompasses all of who we are. Paul does it here with three adverbs. These phrases are actually adverbs that describe the verb. How are we to live? We're to live self-controlledly. We are to live uprightly. And we are to live godly. And there's a method here to Paul's instruction. We are to live first and foremost as self-controlled people. So we begin godly life with perspective to ourselves. We're to be thoughtful. We're to think about the consequences of our actions, how they affect us. We are to be involved in our own lives. That sounds self-evident, but it is something we must do. We must take awareness of our own lives. Elders are called to do this, you will recall, in chapter 1, verse 8. They are called to be self-controlled. And this reminds us yet again that all Christians are to have those characteristics of an elder, but it also reminds us that the only way that we can be self-controlled, the only way that we can serve the Lord, the only way that we could be an elder is because of the grace of God. We can't do it on our own. It's grace that trains us. It also trains us to be upright. That is, within the sphere of our relationship to others. Not just a life that is godly in ourselves, but in the way we relate to others. Grace improves our relationships with others. So if we're following the Lord Jesus Christ, we should not be known as miserable, cantankerous people that you do not want to be around. We should be known as people who are kind, helpful, encouraging. Grace makes us that way. But grace also affects our relationship with the Lord because we are to live lives that are godly. So the way in which we think about God is about grace. Grace involves our own actions, our relations to others, and the way that we, if you will, do theology. It is grace that does this. It trains us in life. But grace does something else. It also gives focus to us. It gives us a focus both on our redemption and on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, Paul says the grace of God has appeared and it has appeared to train us, but also in verse 13, it has appeared as we are waiting for our blessed hope. Grace helps us 
to wait. You should remember that, kids. In the week leading up to Christmas, in the hours leading up to opening up of the presents, <coughs> the way that you wait patiently, expectantly, is a result of grace. But our Christmas analogy helps us in understanding the way that we are to wait in our lives. How do, well I know children do and I think most adults, how do you wait for opening up presents on Christmas Day? I know how all the kids wait. Mom and dad have to drag you out of bed and you say, no, please can we eat breakfast first? And, you know, I thought maybe we would just, I'd read a book first. I'd sit around, right? Isn't that what happens? Well, if you're like me, the first thing you tried to do was convince your parents that 1201 Christmas Eve was actually Christmas. So you could open them. Then secondly, you would test and see exactly how early you could get up. And they would get up as well. And then you would run in and want to tear open presents, right? That kind of expectation, that kind of waiting, Paul says, that kind of Christmas morning expectation is the way we should approach the hope that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about this too. Do you remember Simeon waiting in the temple, waiting for the kingdom of God to come? And after he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, Now I can die, O Lord, because I have seen your salvation. His whole life he waited. That's the kind of waiting we are to have. Because if we have this kind of waiting, grace teaches us that this world is not our hope. This is the great challenge for the American Christian. You see... The Christian who lives in the Sudan doesn't have enough to eat ever and who attempts to protect his children from Muslim slave traders and who prays that disease will not overtake his family. He knows this world is not his hope. But the Christian with the big flat screen TV and antibiotics for everything and security in 401ks is tempted to think this world is his hope. <coughs> and that hope is a slender reed, isn't it? His 401ks go down, don't they? And there are diseases <coughs> that there's no medicine for now, isn't there? And TVs break, don't they? even when they're new. You see, we can't have that to be our hope. Our hope must be in the Lord Jesus Christ and in grace that tells us that Jesus is coming back for His people because of what He has done for His people. You see, this world is not our hope, so Christian, you don't need to be afraid. Now, don't be foolish with respect to terrorist attacks. But don't spend your days fretting about them. Don't be foolish about storms. But don't be consumed with fear about storms that can come upon you. You see, because our hope is not in this world, grace teaches us that we can live lives that are not afraid. 
We can live lives that don't overemphasize the here and the now. So we will not be disappointed. Grace has appeared in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will appear again as Jesus comes back. Do you see this in verse 11? The grace of God has appeared. But then again in verse 13, we are waiting for the appearing of the glory of Jesus. As surely as grace has appeared in Jesus in the first advent, grace assures us that Jesus will appear in the second advent. Grace teaches us to focus on our own redemption. It is something that we will be blessed by. But the reason that we are focused on our redemption is that grace focuses us on Jesus Christ. It points us to Jesus and who He is. Paul has this wonderful phrase here. It's perhaps the best description of Jesus in the Bible. Now I know I've, now I've got your attention because you're thinking of, well, where else is Jesus described? But think about how Jesus is described here. Jesus is great. He is magnificent. He is powerful. He is great, big and large. He straddles the universe. There is no place where Jesus is not. He is also a Savior. Jesus is the one who saves His people. He is a great Savior. And He is also God. Jesus is not just a good teacher, people. This is the reason why there are not all sorts of different ways to heaven and God, because only Jesus is God. Jesus is the only one who can save, because He is the only Savior that is God. This is what we are called to look for, to expect. Jesus is the one who appears. He is the one whose glory we are all longing for. Is your focus on the Lord Jesus? If it isn't, you need more grace. You need more training. You need to get in Grace's gym and be trained to have your eyes keenly looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace gives training. Grace gives focus. But grace also gives hope. Now, what do I mean by this? We were just talking about looking for that glorious, blessed hope. What kind of other hope does grace give? We see it here in verse 14. The grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Grace gives us great hope that we will be free from sin. Is that something you want, beloved? Do you want to be free not just from others' sin, not just from the effects of sin, but do you desire to be free from sin? Grace gives you hope that you are and will be because of what Jesus has done. Grace points to what Jesus has already done in your life. Jesus gave Himself, past tense, He gave Himself for us. To redeem us from all lawlessness. 
This is Paul's way of just describing what Jesus himself says in Mark 10. The Son of Man came not to serve, or just to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus stood in your place, and grace lets you know that there is hope because your sin has been nailed to the cross in Jesus Christ. What more hope could you ask for? It is finished. Jesus stood in your place. He took the wrath of God upon Himself. This is great hope. We are to be free from sin because of what Jesus has done, but also because of why Jesus did it. Jesus gave Himself in order to redeem us from all lawlessness, to set us free. This word redeem is the word that we get for setting a prisoner free. He has given us liberty, given us liberty from sin. He has removed the control of sin over your life. This ties back to the training of grace. The reason that we can say no to sin is because Jesus has removed all control of sin over your life. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you may still sin, but sin does not have control over you. You can say no to sin. This is something to remember, to remind yourself of. Just like, parents, don't you do this with your children? As they grow, you remind them when they say they can't do this. Of course you can. Don't you remember last week? Oh, of course you can. I saw you do that yesterday. Oh, I know you can. Grace is saying to you, Christian, that you can be free from sin. I know you can. Because of what Jesus has done. But it is more than just being free from the control of sin. Jesus is also cleaning us up for himself. He is purifying us, removing the defilement of sin. Not just the control, but the stain. You know the way sin cuts into you at odd times? When you're sitting quietly and you remember that really harsh word that you said, and you cringe, and you wish you could have taken it back. Or the thing that you did that you know was ungodly, and you just you wish no one knew about it and you could take it back. Jesus' death cleans you of that, cleans you of all that stains you. Jesus gives us great hope because of what he has done, and grace gives us hope also because it makes us to be who Jesus wants us to be. You see that here at the end of verse 14. Jesus gave himself both to redeem us and to purify us and to do this for a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God is intimately involved with good works because the grace of God in your life is like a billows that stokes that principle that God has implanted in your new heart when you trust in Jesus Christ, that you desire to serve the Lord. Grace fans that flame so that you cannot help but do good works 
that they show that Jesus is at work in your life. There is an eagerness, a fervor. Paul uses this word zealous for a reason. It's kind of an old-fashioned word, isn't it? But what it means is we are eager. It's like the way that you pop out of bed in the morning. The way that you desire to tear into that great chocolate pie. The eagerness and the desire that grips you. That's what we should have for good works. It pushes us on more and more. Because these works show Jesus at work in us. And this shows that Jesus is making us more than just individuals. He's making us a people that shine for His glory. You see, grace is about more than just a transaction. I think sometimes when we talk about justification and the great transaction where our sins are placed on Christ and Christ's righteousness is placed on us. If we stop there, we miss something because salvation is more than a contract. It is more than relief from hell. It is more than a ticket to heaven. Salvation is about being formed into a people of God that God takes us and makes for himself the people that he desires to glorify and worship and praise him forever. We are not just saved. We are saved for something, to be God's people. That means that God is not just interested in taking off your guilt God is interested in you. He wants you. He wants you singing His praises. He wants you glorifying Him. He wants you around the throne of grace. You are important as an individual to Jesus. You are His particular people. You're not His vague and general people. Your name is written on His palms. Does that give you great hope? That's what grace does. It reminds us of the work of Jesus Christ. This grace has appeared now. It has always been, for God is always gracious. But this grace appears because when something appears, what does it do? When something appears, it comes out of hiding, as it were. Right? Something that was concealed is now revealed. This word appearing is used of the daybreak, of an army that springs out in ambush. This is how the grace of God appears in your life. It is something that God has always manifested. From the beginning of time, He has been a gracious God. It is in His character, but it appears now in Jesus Christ, and it appears now in your life. Does grace seem great to you? I hope so. Because if we want real change in our lives, if we want better marriages, if we want better relationships with our children, if we want to defeat the sin in our lives, then we must look to the Lord and His grace. Every problem that you have right now is a place for the grace of God to appear and show the glory of God. Grace can even get you excited about your problems. 
How good is our Lord? He is the most wondrous, mighty, saving, gracious being in all of the universe. That, Christian, is your Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are indeed the bringer of grace. That you remind us that you are at work in our lives and you seek to have us changed by your grace. Lord, bless us. Even remind us now of all of the work that you have done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.